Welcome to Tech Humanity, the weekly podcast where we examine the intersection between technology and humanity. In the 21st century, the so-called digital age, ones and zeros tend to determine much of what we call reality. Do you ever question the nature of your reality? Do you ever wonder how new technologies, things like social media, apps for humanistic ideas and so on shape your consciousness? Are we in charge of technology or is technology in charge of us? Will singularity become a reality and AI become the new creator competing directly with the metaphysical God? These are some of the ideas and questions educator, author, cultural critic, and philosopher of technology Dr. Tony Kashani will examine in this episode and many more in the future. So please join us in Tech Humanity! Hello friends, welcome to Tech Humanity, a program that examines the art of being human in the digital age. I'm your host, Tony Kashani. We live in the so-called digital age, where ones and zeros tend to shape our world and in many ways shape us. Well, we make technologies to ostensibly make our lives better, make us better, so we can become more ethical, kinder, and much closer to one another. But the fuzziness of technology tends to complicate the ways of humanity. There are many questions we should ask ourselves, many philosophical, psychological, and scientific problems to tackle. The art of being human is full of wonders. We should embrace this wonderful journey. This is the kind of discourse we shall build at Tech Humanity. But first, a story. This is a story from an ancient time and place. This goes back many, many, many centuries ago, coming from a region that today we refer to as the Middle East, located on the Eastern Hemisphere. There is a small village. This village is called Destiny. And there is a young merchant, say in his 20s. His name is Basir, and he's very smart, intuitive, and quite brash and ambitious, and quite honest too. One day he hears of an opportunity in the big city, and the big city is located halfway past the mountains where Basir lives. So he decides to take this opportunity, get on the journey, and go over to the big city and sell his merchandise and make big business. He packs his bags, he puts his merchandise on his camel, and he fills his canteen with much water, gets on the, the camel, and moves towards the big city. As he reaches a fork in the road, a very famous fork, going to the right would take him through the desert to get to the city, and it's the shortest route. Going to the left, he would have to go through the mountains, which would be a fine and pleasant journey, but much longer than the journey through the desert. So Basir thinks to himself, 
Well, I need to take advantage of this opportunity. My competition could get to the city much sooner than I. So he decides to take the right fork and go through the desert and brave the mysterious desert. He charges on. Halfway through the desert, suddenly there is a sandstorm. The infamous sandstorm of the desert. They can be deadly. But Basir is courageous. He's quite brash. So he decides to cut through the storm and fight the storm. So he cuts through the barrier of the storm. And once he reaches the other side in the middle of the storm, suddenly things are quiet, peaceful, as if time has stood by as if it's a space where there is no time. He wonders about this and carries on. As he's moving forward, somewhere in the distance, he notices a figure, could be a human being, crawling on the ground. He decides to charge forward and get closer. As he gets closer, he realizes this is a man, a much older man than he, and the man is near death he's crawling on the ground so he decides to help the man gets off his camel walks to the man and they lock eyes the man stares at Basir with astonishment and says to him is it you as if he knows him as he has recognized him Basir is taken aback he goes, I don't know this guy how does he know me What's he saying? What does he mean by, is it you? And then he thinks to himself, he must be delirious from the storm, and the pain and the injuries he's, he's got. So he doesn't mind it. Goes up to the old man and says, let me help you. Starts helping the old man. Gives him some water. Gives his camel some water. Gives him some food. And sort of shapes him up. And gets him on his journey towards the mountains. This way, he knows that while he's helping this man, he's losing his opportunity at the big city. And he's going to have to turn back and take that trip some other time. But Basir feels this is the right thing to do. As the old man is walking away, actually on his camel, <laughs> moving away, he turns back, looks at Basir, as if he wants to say something profound. Hesitates for a moment. Then he says, young man, someday the desert will repay you, and moves away. Thirty some odd years go by, and now Basir is an old man, an old merchant, very successful and well respected in the community, and quite wise at that. One day he's in the big city, the same big city that he was taking that journey to. And he's doing business in, in uh, business as usual, talking to people and doing things. And, and suddenly somebody comes to him and, and gives him bad news. Says, Basir, uh, your wife is sick back in the village, the village of destiny. You need to go back. You need to get there in a hurry and help your family. So he decides to do the right thing and quickly packs his bags, puts some water in his canteen, grabs some food, gets on his camel and charges home. He reaches the desert, and he could go two ways. He can go through the mountains, or he can cut through the desert to get to the village much, much quicker. 
Naturally, he decides to go through the desert because he wants to be with his family as soon as possible. Halfway through the desert, suddenly there is a sandstorm. Same as the one that he experienced 30 some odd years ago. Almost exactly the same kind of storm. He's a much older man and he's kind of bewildered what to do. But somehow, intuitively, he decides to cut through the storm. He braves it. He goes inside. Once he reaches the other side and the boundary is gone, he recognizes a peaceful space that he's in. As if time has stood by, he remembers this time. And he says to himself, I must celebrate this moment. Grabs his canteen of water, starts drinking water, and suddenly the canteen slips out of his hands and all of his water slips out and drains. The canteen is drained and there's no water left. Well, he has no choice. He has to move forward. So he continues on. And at some point, he is so thirsty and tired and exhausted that he falls off his camel. And a minute later, the camel falls because he can't go any longer as well. He reaches a point where he's crawling on the ground. And he's thinking to himself, this is it. I'm dying. I'm going to die in this desert. and I will not see my family before I die. And he continues crawling and crawling. Suddenly he looks up and he sees a figure. There's a man on a camel charging toward him. He looks up and the man gets closer and closer. Once the man gets off his camel and moves closer to him, they lock eyes. Basir looks at him. He recognizes the man, this much younger, stronger man. He stares at him and he says to him, Is it you? Of course, you can see how the story unfolds. And the idea is that Basir is running into himself. While I was thinking about the story, I was reminded of something else. A thought experiment done by uh, the, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who is known to be the father of modern existentialism. Uh, in this thought experiment, of course, you know, uh, Sartre was very fond of using thought experiments to discuss his philosophies of existentialism. Uh, he talks about a man uh, who has an appointment with his mother. He's supposed to go to a restaurant and meet his mother at a specific table. The man arrives at the restaurant and walks up to the table, but the, his mother is not there. He looks around and the mother is not anywhere in the restaurant. He looks around some more. He goes to the maitre d' and starts asking questions. Has this woman stopped by here? Did anybody ask for me? And so on. So what happens here is that the man does not see his mother in the restaurant because she's not there. But he does see his mother in his mind, his consciousness, if you will. He knows what his mother looks like. He knows what she might say when she sees him. After all, she's the person who raised him. So there is 
two kinds of realities here that the man is experiencing. The presence and the being of the mother in his mind and the physical presence where he is and the mother is not present there. This is what Jean-Paul Sartre called being and nothingness. In fact, he's written a book about it. It's part of his philosophy. So in some ways, you could see the story of Basir being in the desert, seeing himself. At the same time, he was always there. The old man and the young man. The self and the other are the same. While I was comparing the two stories and thinking about how we conceive of reality, time, and introspecting about our experiences about these kinds of things and, and the way in which our consciousnesses are affected by them, I was also reminded of another story. A friend of mine the other day was telling me about how she found this piece of technology that is giving her much peace of mind. And I asked her, well, what is it that you're talking about? And she said, well, you know, my husband and I, but they have a, a small child. And this child is about one year old. And both of them have to work. You know, they go to work and they have these technical jobs. Um, and uh, they're gone all day from the house. So they've hired this nanny that comes to their house. And, you know, she's come with good references and, and uh, checked her out and she seems very nice and everything but all day long you know about eight nine hours that are they're away from the house there's just this nanny and their child and you know her being a mother you know uh, she's uh, always concerned even though you know the, the nanny can be trusted and so forth at the same time she's always worried about her child so she found this this camera that, that she purchased online uh, it's it's kind of like a surveillance piece of equipment that she's placed in the child's room uh, near the crib. So when she's at work, she's experiencing different kinds of reality. She's on her computer, getting on websites, conducting meetings online, answering emails. You know, it's a form of uh, virtual reality that many of us, most of the listeners here, experience on a daily basis. But she's at the same time present at her desk in her little cubicle conducting her business. While in the corner of her big screen, there's a smaller screen where she can see her child. Well, in fact, she's not seeing the child. She is seeing a facsimile of her child. She can see what you know the, the little kid is doing, moving around, Walking, whether the uh, the nanny enters the room, whether she's paying attention to the child, you know, kind of like sur surveying and, and, and supervising what is happening. But it's all, in some ways, even though it's real time, as it were, it is a form of uh, virtual reality that she's experiencing. So this is like three different plateaus where reality is being experienced. So the ways in which this affects her consciousness is kind of interesting because in her mind she's envisioning some things with the child and the nanny and, and her own feelings about the child and so on. Then at the same time she's able to see images but the images 
don't necessarily correspond 100% with what she's imagining in her head. So the two realities are kind of uh, colliding with one another. They may be overlapping with some similarities, but there are differences. Then there is the reality of working online and being uh, with people online and imagining, you know, what people are saying and so forth. And also, once in a while, she admits this, and, and this is probably coming at no surprise to anyone who's listening here. While she works, she also has her social media site on. And every once in a while, the little screen pops up. There's a message from a friend. There's a news alert. There is a, a new um, notification about something or rather something has been purchased and she's received a note, etc., etc. And so there, there are multiple levels of reality that she walks in and out of, so to speak. I was thinking about this with my own experience of this sort. You know, as a... a a professor of humanities, I do different things in my life. Sometimes I'm in a classroom talking to students, and uh, you know I tend to teach in a dialogic manner. And but sometimes I'm online, teaching online, and it's a strange feeling because most of the online teaching that goes on or learning, shall we say. Uh, happens asynchronously. And what I mean by that is that I could be on a page, in a forum, responding to somebody's response to a question, to a, a discussion point, to a, a, a prompt of some sort, and it's as if I am talking to that person. Right? I'm typing away, or I'm speaking into a microphone, and, and uh, the voice gets recorded. Uh, so I imagine in my consciousness, in my mind, that I'm talking to this person, whom I know by name, I may have seen some pictures, and vice versa. She has done the same thing. But while I am experiencing this typing of the message, or talking into the microphone, and responding to another response, this is very much real for me. But what kind of reality is that? This is the sort of thing that should compel us to think about the extent to which technology, particularly new technologies, that constantly send us into the virtual world, are affecting our consciousnesses. Well, this is kind of abstract, isn't it? But abstractions are what we need to think carefully about to send us to a place of contemplation. Basir runs into himself. Is he introspecting? Is he contemplating the meaning of time and existence? Is he learning a lesson? Now, listening to the story, some people may have one form of interpretation where others have another form of interpretation. They both can be valid they both can be corresponding with the way in which these two people experiencing reality on a daily basis. And this is relative to the extent to which folks are 
inside the technology or outside the technology? Mostly, the main question is, the tools we make, such as social media and all the algorithms and all the rest of it, that tend to shape our world, do they make us or do they give us clues as to which way to go? Do they show us the fork in the road? Do we go to the left or do we go to the right? These are questions that we will think about, discuss, explore, contemplate, and reflect upon. I look forward to being with you at the next episode, and I thank you for giving me your attention, your ears, and hopefully the comments that you will send to the website of Tech Humanity. I bid you farewell, and I want you to be well.